I'm going to read a statement that was read at the beginning of the series last last week, and it's from Testimonies, Volume 9, page 19, just to remind us of the importance of the three angels' messages, that this is a time where we definitely want to understand these messages. So this is Testimonies, Volume 9, page 19. In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. The most solemn truths ever entrusted to mortals have been given us to proclaim to the world. The proclamation of these truths is to be our work. And I said this last week, and I'll say it again as we get into the study this evening. You know, I hear people say, we need to make Adventism relevant for the current generation and all of that kind of thing. And I hear people say that, but when I read the Bible, the three angels' messages are to be given to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, or every every country in the world, every people group in the world, every language group in the world. And so whether you are young or old, the three angels' messages are specifically for this time. And if we stop giving the three angels' messages, we've lost our purpose as Seventh-day Adventists. We're, we are to allow nothing else to absorb our attention. And, you know, there are certain things about the three angels' messages that are not necessarily popular with respect to the world around us, but they are the very messages that the world needs. And so, you know, I just want to challenge each one of you, whatever church you attend, whatever group you go to, don't let anybody ever tell you that the three angels' messages are things we shouldn't be talking about right now. They are the absolute necessary messages for this time. You know, I was talking to a friend last night as well, and we were remembering what it was like to have lived through 9-11. And um, the friend I was talking to, he and I were both in Southern California when that happened. And, you know, very clearly that crisis led to a revival among a lot of young people. And we remarked that we hope and pray that the crisis we're living through now will lead to a revival and reformation among a lot of young people as well and people of all ages because you know in the last few years it feels sometimes like things have kind of tapered off and we've kind of hit a plateau and people are just kind of going through the motions so i'm hopeful that as we see this current crisis and as we get back into the bible and as we're studying the three angels messages that we will regain a sense of urgency of just how important the prophetic message we have been given as Seventh-day Adventists. We looked last week at the, the first part of the first angel's message, and just by quick way of review, for those of you who weren't here, Revelation 14 has three main sections. The first five verses describe the 144,000. Verses 6 through 12 describe the three angels' messages. And verses 14 through 20 describe the harvest. And that pattern is there for a reason. So the way the pattern goes is this. You have the 144,000. 
they are produced by the three angels' messages. So the three angels' messages with the everlasting gospel produce the 144,000. When the three angels' messages of verses 6 through 12 produce the 144,000 seen in verses 1 through 5, then we see the harvest, which is the second coming. So it's very important to understand these messages because the three angels' messages produce the harvest that will be ready for the coming of Jesus. Then we got into the first angel's message specifically, and we saw that the first angel's message consists of the everlasting gospel. And what we saw about the everlasting gospel is that the everlasting gospel, according to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, is the righteousness of God revealed, not simply declared, but revealed in the lives of the just who live by faith. The reason why the everlasting gospel has so much power is because the righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of the just who live by faith. Then we saw what it meant to fear God. So we see that the first angel's message is given with a loud voice with the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And it says, with a loud voice, fear God. And so we briefly went through several verses. You may have written them down, but I'll remind you, we saw in Proverbs 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 3, verse 7, we saw that the fear of the Lord is, the, is to depart from evil. In Proverbs eight thirteen, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. In Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 15, 33, it's the instruction of wisdom. And then in Psalms 34, verses 11 through 15, which to me was the most important passage, in that passage, the, the the psalmist says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And when he says, I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord, he says, keep your lips from speaking evil and your, your tongue from guile, which is a, a description of the 144,000 in Revelation 14. So the fear of the Lord teaches us how to be part of the 144,000. And then, ex, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14 um, says, let us hear the con conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every be evil. So you see the fear of God connected to obedience and to the judgment hour. So that, then we briefly started to get into what it means to give glory to God. And that's what we're going to pick up with tonight. My, my goal tonight is to finish the first angel's message and also cover the second angel's message. And the next week we'll cover the third angel's message. So that was a brief review um, for all of you who were here. It's just good to be reminded of that briefly. And for those of you who weren't here, that gets you up to speed. So as we continue on, it will make sense. So, in the first angel's message, we see after the announcement of the everlasting gospel and, and how the message is given with a loud voice to fear God, then it says, give glory to him. And I, I do want to remind you as well that these messages are to be given with a loud voice. Too many Seventh-day Adventists are embarrassed of these messages and are not sharing them. But we are to give these messages with a loud voice to the entire world. So, we talked about what it means to fear God. So what does it mean to give glory to him? We started talking about that last week, but I'm going to develop that more completely in our study this evening. What does it mean to give glory to God? Well, we talked about the first verse that I mentioned last week, and we're going to look at it again, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 
chapter 10 and verse 31. And here the Apostle Paul says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that really doesn't leave anything out. You know, everything that we do, whether it's our lifestyle or our profession, even the food that we eat and that which we drink, anything that we do is for the glory of God. And we've talked about this, I think, in in some of our studies, but sometimes we have the wrong mentality in the Adventist church. And the first angel's message says very clearly, give glory to God. But a lot of times we have been having a different perspective than giving glory to God. The perspective among many in Adventism is what's the minimum standard I can live by that Jesus will accept me for. And if Jesus will accept this minimum standard, I'm not going to live any higher than that. And we ask questions such as, is this a salvational issue? Now, there's probably an occasion here or there where asking that question is okay. But a lot of times when we ask that question, it's so that we can lower a standard rather than having the perspective of giving glory to God. So whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we wear, whatever we watch, the, the lifestyle that we have, the job that we have, everything that we do should be for the purpose of giving glory to God. And it's hard to give glory to God when our perspective is such that we feel like we can live by a lower standard than what scripture asks, thinking that somehow God will accept that, and we have the wrong perspective altogether. You see, God is looking for people who are safe to save, who love him with all of their heart, soul, and mind. When we love the Lord with all of our heart, when we see what Jesus has done for us on the cross, when our hearts are broken by his sacrifice for the sins that we have committed that put him on the cross, our mentality changes about the life that we live. Rather than living for ourselves, we live for him. When we live for him, our motivations change and the desires that we're living for are different. So rather than trying to live by a minimum standard, we love the Lord so much and we desire to give glory to him. You know, a simple illustration is, you know, the, the married relationship. And some of you here on this call are married. Some of you might still be single. Some of you might be dating somebody, but you know, it's kind of funny how when you first start dating someone, I mean, you do everything you can to make the best impression possible at all times under all circumstances. And you want to do everything you can to please that person in the best way possible. Um, And then, you know, marriages that end up not going so well, people grow apart and they stop caring about being unselfish for the other person and things can be, can, can run into difficulty. And, and that happens a lot with, 
the Christian experience as well. You have that first love experience where you want to do everything you can because you love the Lord so much. And you're not trying to earn salvation, but you love the Lord so much that you want to do everything you can to please him out of your love for him. But then you see other people around who don't always live to the highest standard. And it's like, well, hey, they go to Advent Hope or they go to such and such church or they're part of GYC or whatever it is. And, and hey, they're, they're eating chicken, so I think I will too. And rather than following what the Bible says and what the spirit of prophecy says, um, we compare ourselves among ourselves rather than having the perspective of whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we wear, whatever we do. It should be for the glory of God. And sorry if I'm stepping on toes, but I mean, not really. I said it because it needed to be said. But, you know, this is something that happens where we take our eyes off of Jesus and off of a, a heart full of love for him. And we start comparing ourselves and we stop giving glory to God. You look at Daniel and his three friends all through the book of Daniel. They didn't ask in Daniel chapter one about the king's meat and the wine, which he drank. Is this a salvational issue? No, they asked, would this give glory to God? Clearly it wouldn't. And so they wouldn't eat or drink from the, the king's table. And the, the experience of Daniel is to be the experience of those who experience the three angels' messages and of giving glory to God. That's one aspect of giving glory to God. The other aspect of giving glory to God is found in Romans chapter 4. So in Romans chapter 4, this is the chapter on the faith of Abraham. And specifically, we're going to look at verses 18 through 22 to start off. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Now, Abraham is the father of faith. And this is a very instructive passage on what it means to have faith. So speaking of Abraham's faith, and actually, um, I'm going to start in verse 17, sorry. So here it says, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. So in Romans 4, 17, Paul says of Abraham, he believed in the power of God who could raise from the dead and call things into existence, existence that weren't even present. So Abraham believed something could happen because God said so, even if he had never seen it before. And specifically, he believed in the resurrection of Isaac. Paul says that in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, he's speaking of Isaac, he says, accounting that God could raise him from the dead from whence also he received him in a figure. Now, here's the interesting thing. God didn't promise that he would raise Isaac from the dead. All Abraham was doing was putting the pieces together that it was through Isaac that Abraham's seed would be called. So Abraham, by faith, said, if God has called me to sacrifice Isaac, he must then be planning to raise him from the dead because God quickens the dead or raises the dead and he can call things that which are not even if they were. Now, here's the amazing thing. There had never been a resurrection before. So Abraham believed in things that God hadn't specifically promised and that God hadn't even said would happen and that had not happened before. So that's part of Abraham's faith. Continuing in verse 18, who against hope, 
believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be so abraham believed against all that was rationally humanly possible and then in verse 19 and being not weak in faith he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old neither yet the deadness of sarah's womb so not only was he past the point of biologically being able to have children so was his wife so not only did his faith have to overcome his human limitation, his faith had to overcome Sarah's biological limitation. Now, here's the spiritual application to that point. Sometimes I hear people say, I could be a better Christian if it wasn't for my spouse. I could be a better Christian if it wasn't for to live in. And God saying, I am the God that quickens the dead and calls things which be not as though they were. And the same God that raised or that gave the promise that Isaac could be raised from the dead and that raised Moses from the dead and that raised Jesus from the dead. The same God who can create a new heart in your life. When that happens in your heart, your faith can produce faith in the people closest to you. And that's evidence that you're living a righteous life by faith. So don't blame the people who are closest to you for your, your bad attitude and the lack of the fruits of the Spirit in your life. God has placed those people in your life so that you will have faith and that you will have the fruits of the Spirit. And Abraham was strong in faith. He didn't consider his own body now dead, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. I know, you know, Liz Chung's on this this study and you know she would tell you very clearly that you don't have to be an OBGYN to know that a woman who's 90 years old can't have a baby and so this was a clear supernatural miracle of God and it's a promise that if God can produce a new birth from two biologically incapable humans Abraham's 100 Sarah is 90 you're telling me that God can't give you the new birth experience of conversion? That's having the type of faith that is needed for this time. And so then going on in verse 20, it says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but notice this, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Uh, this is powerful. So what does it mean to give glory in the hour of God's judgment? It means to have faith like Abraham. It means to believe in that which everybody else says is humanly impossible. And the thing that God has said about his people at the end of time is that he will have a people who will keep the commandments of God, who will live obedient lives, who will believe in the promises such as Jude 24, which says now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. And when the Christian world is saying it's impossible to overcome sin. We're going to be sinning until Jesus comes. Have you seen anybody who's perfect? Have you seen anyone who's ever overcome sin? God is saying, consider the faith of Abraham, who was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And in the hour of God's judgment, you should give glory to God by being strong in faith and stop considering your human weaknesses. Stop considering your human baggage. Stop considering the baggage and the weaknesses of the people 
people who you live with, your parents or your wife or your husband or your children or whatever it is, be strong in faith and believe that if God could give a new birth to Abraham and Sarah, he can give a new birth to you and you can be a new creature in Christ Jesus. And that's what it means to give glory to God. You are strong in faith and everything that you do in life, whatever you eat or drink or however you live is done for the purpose to bring glory to God. So fearing God and giving glory to him is all about preparing a people to be part of the 144,000. Those who whose tongues will be kept from having guile in their mouth, who will hate evil, who will keep God's commandments, who understand that every work will be brought before the judgment. But listen, when you love the Lord and when your mentality is to bring glory to him, you won't be afraid of the judgment because you realize that your friend is on your side and you have lived your life out of love for him to bring glory to him. So what do you have to be afraid of in the judgment hour? The reason why people are afraid of the judgment is because we live selfish lives where we don't fear God, we don't reverence him, and we're not living to bring glory to him. We're looking to try to get by through a minimum standard to pass through the pearly gates with a with a barely passing score. And it's kind of like that feeling when you didn't study for that examination in school and you hand them the test and you wait for the grade to come back and you know it's not going to be good. And that's how a lot of people are in their Christian walk because we're not surrendering to the Lord. We don't love Jesus with all of our hearts. And so we're trying to hopefully get it by with a minimum standard when scripture says, no, in the hour of God's judgment, fear God, give glory to him, live through the power of the everlasting gospel where the righteousness of God is revealed in your life. God is all powerful. If he could do to Abraham and Sarah, or if he could give them a new birth when they were past childbearing age, don't tell me that he can't give you victory over whatever sin it is in your life. And you know, I'll talk to to guys, I go around and speak and there's these guys and they'll be like, you know, every other thing makes sense, but there's one thing. And it's, it usually comes down to one thing for guys. It's the things they watch on the internet. I'm not going to go into any more detail than that. But guys just have this tendency to get trapped in that thing. You know what? God can give you the victory over that. If he could give victory to Abraham, or if he could give a new birth to Abraham and Sarah, he can give that victory to you. And women have other struggles and other issues. Whatever it is, God can give us victory. And I, I love how Romans 4 continues after it says Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21 says, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Are you fully persuaded in the promises of God? Or do they just seem like nice suggestions that work for some people, but they haven't worked for you? Listen, by experience and by faith, God can show you that you can be fully persuaded in his promises and that you can learn by experience that God is a faithful God, that he is a loving God, and that he will perform what he has said he will perform. Listen, God may not give you a big bank account. God may not give you the nicest house or the nicest car. He may not even give you the job that you prefer, but there's one thing that he will give you guaranteed if you by faith come to him, and that is an overcoming righteous life by faith that he has promised to everyone who believes. And that's the only thing that you really should want in this present life. 
whatever else may come, whatever state you are in, you can be content, whether you're abounding or you're in prison. Paul said that from prison in Rome. He had seen the greatest things in life, and now he's writing from prison. And whatever state he's in, he's content. Because as long as you have a righteous life by faith, giving glory to God, that's the only thing that matters. So, um, there's one other passage I'm going to take you to about what it means to give glory to God. This is Luke chapter 17, verses 17 and 18. Luke chapter 17, now you can do your own study and find other passages that talk about what it means to give glory to God. But these three passages, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Romans 4, and then um, Luke 17 are the passages I'm going to look at. So you, you know the story of the 10 lepers and how nine rushed away and one came back. This is the one leper in Jesus that came back to thank Jesus. And this is what Jesus says in verses 17 and 18. And Jesus answering said, were there not 10 cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. Notice this leper, he had been healed, but he not only received the blessing of healing. When he came back to Jesus, he not only received physical healing, he received spiritual healing. And giving glory to God in this setting is this one leper. And by the way, Jesus healed all 10 for the one, for the one who would receive the spiritual healing. And, and God does that. He'll give blessings to everybody, so to speak, so that the, the few who appreciate the blessings and who will receive the salvation um, will, will get those blessings too. But the reason why the one leper who came back gave glory to God is that he offered appreciation and thanks for the blessings that God gave to him. And a lot of times we take for granted all of the blessings that we receive and just think that we kind of deserve what we have. And Ellen White makes a statement in the chapter, Patriarchs and Prophets, it's in the chapter on the death of Moses, where she says, God speaks to us by blessings. It's about how Moses died and how God spoke to the children of Israel by the blessing being removed. And when Moses was removed by death, the children of Israel realized what they had been missing. And so giving glory to God is giving thanks to him for all of the blessings in your life. And the biggest blessing that you can ever receive is justification by faith. This leper by faith when he came back to thank Jesus because he not only received physical healing, when he came back to Jesus, he received spiritual healing, meaning he had been forgiven of, of his sins and he was now cleansed. And so giving glory to God. One other thing that's worth mentioning about giving glory to God and going back to Abraham briefly you know, you may think, oh, that's a pie in the sky experience for Abraham. Verse 22, the next verse is, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. That's justification by faith. And then verse 23 says, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. 
if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. In other words, listen, this is not just a pie in the sky experience for Abraham. No, Abraham is the father of faith. And that experience is for us also, if we believe on God, the father who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And interestingly, when you go to Romans six, verses three and four, we see that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father. And we should be raised to walk in newness of life. That's Romans six, four. So we can believe that even if our lives have been dead in trespasses and sins, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead can raise us up to live the new righteous life by faith. That's what it means to give glory to God. So hopefully you have a, a, a clearer picture now of what it means to give glory to God. We're going to keep moving here. So we go back to the first angel's message. It says, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. Now, the hour of his judgment, you clearly understand that by putting the books of Daniel and Revelation together. When you look at the book of Revelation specifically, it's interesting when you come, you have the first 11 chapters, you have seven churches, seven seals, and seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets end with the Laodicean church, and Laodicea means a judged people. So we come to that last church. It's the church of the judgment hour. Then when we come to the end of the seals, we see that God is waiting to place the seal of God on the foreheads of the 144,000. Those are the ones who will stand in the judgment and receive God's seal. And then you come to the end of the seven trumpets, and you see that when the seventh trumpet sounds in Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19, the temple of God is open in heaven, and in verse 19 it says, there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. That's in the most holy place. So the, the hour of God's judgment has been described throughout the book of Revelation, implicitly and somewhat explicitly, through the, the church's seals and trumpets. And we see the timing for the judgment by going to Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, and we see the the throne of God having wheels of fire, the judgment is set, the books are opened. Um, I'm kind of assuming that this is a bit of review for most of you, but in Daniel, maybe I should slow down a little bit here. Daniel 7, you have a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dreadful beast with teeth of iron, and then a little horn that comes out of that fourth beast. And then after those kingdoms, you see the judgment. And Daniel 8, you have a ram, a hego, and then a little horn, and then you see a cleansing of the sanctuary. Very clearly, with the cleansing of the sanctuary, you have the 2300-day prophecy, which takes you to 1844. So if you don't understand that, we can you can talk to one of your friends here in this group who can explain this to you later. But basically from Daniel seven and eight, we see that the judgment hour begins in 1844, October 22, 1844 specifically. Now here's the interesting thing. When you look at the four major visions in the book of Daniel and how it relates to the judgment hour, you have Daniel two, Daniel seven, Daniel eight, Daniel 11 and 12. Daniel 2, you have the four kingdoms starting with a head of gold, and it concludes with a stone striking the image and a great mountain fills the whole earth. That's describing the second coming of Jesus. In Daniel chapter 7, you have the four kingdoms 
followed by the judgment in heaven, which is 1844. Daniel 8, you have the kingdoms, a ram, he goat, and little horn, followed by the cleansing of the sanctuary. Daniel 11, you have all the kingdoms described, followed by Michael standing up at the close of probation. So here's what Daniel is showing you, and this connects to the first angel's message of the judgment hour, the hour of his judgment is come. This is how it connects. Daniel 2 shows us that Jesus is coming again. But Daniel 7 shows us that in order for Jesus to come, there must be a judgment in heaven first. And Daniel 8 shows us that in order for the judgment in heaven to be finished, the sanctuary in heaven must be cleansed. Daniel 11 then shows us that when the sanctuary in heaven is cleansed, Michael stands up and probation closes just before Jesus comes back. Now, if you look at the big picture, here's the fascinating thing. Daniel 2 shows us that the major apocalyptic event is the second coming. That's sometime in the future. We don't know when it is. Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 shows that the major apocalyptic event at the end of the kingdoms is the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary, which begins in 1844. And Daniel 11 and 12, which describes the close of probation as the major apocalyptic event when Michael stands up, that's yet future. So here's what Daniel wants you to understand. Daniel wants you to understand that the focus of prophetic history is between the beginning of the judgment hour in 1844 till the second coming. That's amazing. So that's what Daniel is showing us in the four major visions. Daniel 2, Jesus is coming again. But before he comes back, there's going to be a judgment. That begins in 1844. And in order for the judgment to finish, the sanctuary in heaven must be cleansed, which begin in 1844. Daniel 11 shows us that when the sanctuary in heaven is cleansed, probation closes. So again, the the hour of his judgment begins in 1844, and, and so Daniel is showing us that from 1844 to the second coming is the most important period of prophetic history. Now here's what the three angels' messages do, and I want you to, to listen to this very carefully. The three angels' messages show us how to live between 1844 and the second coming. The book of Daniel, the four major apocalyptic visions, tell us 1844 to the second coming is the most important period of Earth's history. The three angels' messages announce the hour of his judgment has come. This is how to live in the most important period of the history of, of humanity. And the amazing thing is, and this is what gets me sometimes as Seventh-day Adventists, we're living in that time. We're the people that have been given these messages, and most of us are, are numb to that reality. This is the most amazing time to be alive, and we've been given the most amazing messages to give in the hour of his judgment. 1844 to the second coming, that is the period of Earth's history to be alive. We are alive in that period. How do we live during that period? Through the living of the three angels' messages. We live under the power of the everlasting gospel. We believe that God can produce his righteous life by faith in our hearts. And we believe that we can fear God, that we can abstain from evil, and that we can keep his commandments, and that our works will be brought in before God in the judgment, and we will be able to stand in the judgment, and that we will give glory to him in the hour of his judgment by living 
according to every word of God and everything that we do in our lives will be for his glory. And like Abraham, we will have faith that God can take our dead lives that have been dead in trespasses and sins and give us a new birth the way he gave Abraham and Sarah a new birth through Isaac. And so we're living in the hour of God's judgment. And we have been given these three messages, the messages that are of the most solemn import. And we have all of scripture, which people in the Old Testament didn't have as much scripture as we have. And the New Testament apostles were putting together the New Testament. We have all of that. Plus, we have the spirit of prophecy, which is the testimony of Jesus. And we have this understanding of prophecy. We should be the most on-fire, loving, and lovable Christians at this time of earth's history. It's an amazing message that we have. And it's an amazing time to be alive, and it's, ama- it's an amazing calling that God has given us. So that's the, this idea, the hour of his judgment has come. It's not just any old little thing. That's, that ushers in the most important time prophetically in earth's history until Jesus comes. And we live by the three angels' messages during that time. So that's not the end of the first angel's message, though. The hour of his judgment is coming. It says, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So the first angel's message concludes with a call to worship. So listen, all point in that is, do you worship God? Because in Revelation 13, which we studied a few weeks ago when we talked about the mark of the beast, the people who receive the mark of the beast worship the beast because they receive the mark in their forehead or in their hand. Either you're going to worship God or you're going to worship man. And so we want to be worshiping God. Worship him. Now notice this. It says that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. I'm sure many of you have seen this before. But when it says worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters, Many Bible scholars concur that this is a direct quote from the fourth commandment of Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, which is referring to the Sabbath. This is so important. I'm going to turn there, and I would encourage you to turn there as well. Exodus chapter 20. Um, And I'm going to read the whole fourth commandment, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy stranger that is within, or nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Now notice this verse eleven: For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in the midst. So there's the direct reference that's seen in the first angel's message. And rest of the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So here's what what God is saying in the first angel's message: In the hour of His judgment. We are to worship him because in the hour of his judgment, God, God, the father and God, the son moved from the holy place into the, from the holy place into the most holy place where the law of God is found in the Ark of the Testament. And so it would make sense that as God moves into the most holy place, he would raise up a people who would remember the day that had been forgotten by the world, which is the Sabbath. So we worship God by observing the seventh-day Sabbath, which is the seal of God. Now, there's a few points I want to make about the Sabbath here. And um, I'm going to read to you a statement from Desire of Ages, page 283, about the Sabbath. 
and how this connects to the judgment hour message. This is Desire of Ages, page 283. No other institution which was committed to the Jews tended so fully to distinguish them from, from surrounding nations as did the Sabbath. God designed that its observance should designate them as his worshipers. It was to be a token of their separation from idolatry and their connection with the true God. So here's the, the deal. I mean, the Sabbath is supposed to be a sign that we've separated from the idols of the world around us. Now, continuing on, listen to this. But in order to keep the Sabbath holy, men must themselves be holy. Through faith, they must become partakers of the righteousness of Christ. When the command was given to Israel, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the Lord said also to them, ye shall be holy men unto me. Only thus could the Sabbath distinguish Israel as the worshipers of God. So listen, friends, just because you go to church on Sabbath doesn't mean you've been distinguished from the rest of the world. In order to keep the Sabbath holy, we must be holy people, meaning we must have that experience of righteousness by faith where we believe that God can trans our, transform our sin-polluted heart into the righteous life of Christ by faith. And so when it says worship him, that means we are worshiping the creator who promises that he can create a new heart in our lives and create a holy life within us. And so the Sabbath day of rest is a sign or a seal of the righteous life that we experience with God throughout the week. What I found for myself is that my Sabbath experience is a reflection with God throughout the week. And maybe I've said this here before, but it's worth saying again. You know, there's at least two kinds of Adventists. There's Adventists who look forward to sundown on Friday night, and there's Adventists who look forward to sundown on Saturday night. And if you're looking forward to sundown on Saturday night, it's because you haven't connected with Jesus the way you should be connecting with him if you truly worship him and if you've been transformed into his likeness. So that's what it means to worship him. It's a Sabbath experience that shows that we have been made into a holy people and that we are living righteous lives by faith. So that's the first angel's message. So basically, again, just to encapsulate the first angel's message, it's the everlasting gospel, which is the righteousness of God revealed, as Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, the righteousness of God, God is revealed in the lives of the just or the righteous. You live by faith. It's to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So it's not an exclusive North American-only message. It's to the entire world. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic class you're talking about. It doesn't matter which, which age demographic you're talking about. It's for everybody. So we need to stop making excuses for not proclaiming this or these three messages to the entire world, because that's our, our marching orders from God. And it's, uh, it's to be given with a loud voice, not hiding it under a bushel. And it's also a command to fear God or to reverence him, which means to depart from evil, to have knowledge and wisdom, and to keep our tongue from speaking guile or deceit. And it's to keep the commandments of God with the understanding that we're living in the judgment hour. And then we're told to give glory to him, meaning that everything that we do in the lives that we live is for the honor and glory of God's name. And we're to, to be strong in faith so that we can be like Abraham, who believed that God could produce a new birth in his life and in Sarah's life. And then we are to understand that we are living in the hour of his judgment, which is the most important time prophetically from 1844 to the second coming that anybody could ever be alive. 
and we are to worship him, which is the Sabbath experience. Um, and so that's the first angel's message in a nutshell. It's a powerful message, but that's not all the three angels messages. You know, again, I've heard some Seventh-day Adventists say, oh, I love the, the gospel part of the three angels' messages. Let's talk about the gospel. And then it's kind of a half-baked gospel that they'll share. And then they don't talk about the rest of the three angels' messages. But all of the angels' messages are there for a reason. And as I mentioned last week, we know that there's three angels because um, Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 says, and the third angel followed them. So we know that verses 6 and 7 is the first angel. Verse 8 is the second angel. And verses 9 through 12 is the third angel. Let's talk about the second angel's message. And this is where we will conclude this evening. And the next week we will do the third angel's message. So it's interesting. The first angel's message is, to, is commanded to be given with a loud voice. The third angel's message is to be given with a loud voice. That is not mentioned with respect to the second angel's message, but the message of the second angel is repeated in Revelation 18 with what is known as the loud cry. So when the latter rain is poured out and the loud cry is given, the message of the second angel, along with the first and the third angel, will be given with a loud cry. But notice what verse 8 says. Verse 8 says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, if you notice this very carefully, we have a description of Babylon. In Revelation 13, which I gave a study on the Mark of the Beast a few weeks ago to this group, you have a composite beast in Revelation 13 that has the mouth of a lion. It has the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear. It's the composite beast of the nations from Daniel chapter 7. And the mouth of the lion, the lion, the lion is Babylon. And yet Babylon is being used to describe papal Rome because the mouth of the lion speaks the same things that the little horn of Daniel 7 says. And the little horn of Daniel 7 is clearly the papacy. So the papacy is described in end-time prophetic language as Babylon. And so Babylon is described as is fallen, is fallen. There's two falls to Babylon. The first fall was the Roman Catholic Church state power. The second fall is the fall of the Protestant churches in the summer of 1844 when they rejected the message of the second coming of Jesus. And you can see in Revelation 17 that you have, in verse 5, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So you have the mother church and the daughter harlot churches that are all part of Babylon. Here's one other thing that's worth mentioning about Babylon being fallen twice. And Ellen White says that Babylon's first fall was centuries ago and that the second fall was in the summer of 1844. But in the Bible, we can show this. In the message to the seven churches, you know, there's two churches that don't receive a rebuke. It's the second church and the, the sixth church. The second church is the church of Smyrna. And specifically in verse 9, speaking to the church of Smyrna, 
Christ says to them, I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, what's happening historically is there's already a falling away in the early Christian church by the prophetic church of Smyrna, which is from the time of 100 to 313 AD. There's this falling away with the Roman church, the Roman Christian church. And Christ describes that apostasy and those who were part of the falling away as the synagogue or the church of Satan. And, you know, some may say, oh, no, that was talking about literal Jews back in that period of time. But that's not correct, because then when we come to the sixth church in Revelation chapter 3, which is the church of Pergamos, in Revelation chapter 3, we see again in verse 9, this... Christ is speaking to them. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now, the church of Pergamos is the Millerite movement. And the synagogue of Satan describes the, the, the churches who profess to be followers of Christ. So these would be the Protestant churches. They claim to be followers of Christ. But when the preaching of the second coming was given, the, these, these Protestant churches rejected the message. Yeah, I'm sorry. This is not Pergamos. Um, good, good, good catch there, Adrian. This is Philadelphia. Um, Pergamos was the third church. Philadelphia is the sixth church. So that was definitely a mistake on my part there. So Smyrna is the second church. That's from 100 to 313 AD. You have the falling away with the Roman church. They're described as the synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews. They say they're um, of Christ, of Abraham's seed, but they're not. They're liars. And they're the synagogue or church of Satan. And then in the church of Philadelphia, which is the Millerite movement, they're preaching the coming of Jesus. And the Protestant churches say, oh, we follow Jesus. We love Jesus. But they rejected the message of the coming of Jesus. And Christ calls them the synagogue of Satan. That's why scripture says in the second angel's message of Revelation 14, 8, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The Roman church state fell centuries ago. The Protestant churches fell in the summer of 1844. Now, let me make this very clear. In the Babylonian churches are the majority of God's faithful followers. And that's why the loud cry message says to the people in Babylon in Revelation 18, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her, of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. It's the systems represented by those churches that are fallen. But the people who are living up to the light that they have are God's people, but they're in Babylon. And we as the remnant church are to give a message to call them out. So Babylon is fallen, is fallen. There's two falls. There's the fall centuries ago with the Roman church state power where they they basically, they change Sabbath to Sunday, and then they take away confession to Christ by saying you can confess to the priest. And there's all these other traditions that they brought in where they put the traditions of men above scripture. So they're the synagogue of Satan. And then the fallen Protestant churches, they are the harlots of Babylon, and they endorse Sunday sacredness and the immortality of the soul. That's Babylon. Ellen White says that the wine of Babylon is... Sunday sacredness and the immortality of the soul. And of course, wine is something that places your mind under the influence. And so that's the theology of Babylon, the teachings of Babylon um, under which you are placed. Now, a couple of other things that I want to mention here. So she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So the entire world is under the bewitching influence of this wine or this false theology. And this is the last point I'm going to make because we're down to our last few minutes. 
Here's the interesting thing. When you look at the everlasting gospel and the three angels' messages compared to the theology or the wine of Babylon, the reason why Sunday sacredness constitutes the mark of the beast, well, it's going against the law of God, but think about this. Babylon is basically saying that God's law cannot be kept, therefore it does not matter which day we worship on. And so people go to church on Sunday rather than on the true Bible Sabbath because Babylon teaches that you can't keep God's law anyway, and we're going to continue to sin until Jesus comes anyway. Therefore, this is the day we've chosen, and it's what's culturally acceptable now and convenient now, and so that's the day we worship on. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's the mark of the beast when it's enforced. At the end of the world, as uh, as the, the crisis unfolds, we're told in Inspiration, Great Controversy, and other places, that the people of the land, led by the Christians, the evangelicals of Protestant America, will come to the government and say, we need a law that will enforce Sunday because we've gone away from God. Look how terrible our country has become. Look how wicked we are. And it's time to get people back into church to get us back to God. But here's the implicit thing about a Sunday law. When the church comes to the state and the church comes to the state, and by the way, these are the Babylonian churches that are coming to the state power. And they come to the state power and they say, make a civil law that enforces religion. What the church is implicitly admitting, without realizing it perhaps, they are implicitly admitting that their gospel doesn't work because their gospel hasn't been able to prevent society from falling apart. And so they're saying, We've got to get people into church because our gospel isn't powerful enough to change people. So we need a law from the government that will change people. Whereas the everlasting gospel and the Sabbath message is a message that says God's everlasting gospel is so powerful that it can change your sin-polluted life so that you can be transformed into the righteousness of Christ by faith. And the Sabbath is the sign that you are sanctified and living a holy life because you have faith to believe that God can transform you. So as Seventh-day Adventists, we say we don't need a law from the secular power to enforce a day of worship because our God is so powerful, he will transform our lives. But the, the beast power, the mark of the beast is saying our gospel can't change people so we need the civil government to enforce that law to change people because our gospel doesn't work and that's why you have the seal of god versus the mark of the beast that's why babylon is fallen is fallen because she makes all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and that wine is that false doctrine that says sunday is a sacred day and then that you don't really die when you die which opens people up to believe that their dead relatives will come back to them, which they're really evil spirits, and those evil spirits will tell them the Sabbath has been changed to Sunday. And so that's the second angel's message. And here's the thing. A lot of Seventh-day Adventists don't like to give that message. A lot of us like to say there's no difference between us and the other churches. We all love Jesus. Why do we have to make such a big distinction between us and them? There's no difference between us. In fact, I know 
people in those other churches that are more on fire for Jesus than we are. And you know what? That's true. There are people in the other churches who are more on fire for Christ than many of us, but it doesn't change the fact that the theology of those churches is a fallen theology and it's an incomplete theology. And God has given us these messages to save those people so that they won't receive the mark of the beast in the final crisis. And you may say, oh, let's just, let's just leave them alone. They're happy where they are right now. You know how many God-fearing, Sunday-keeping Christians have gone to their graves without knowing the power of the third angel's messages, who could have moved mountains under the, the movement of the three angel's messages, but we were too afraid to witness to them. And they could have come into the church and done 10 times what we're doing because we're too afraid to share with them the truth as it is in Jesus for this time. What are we doing? Are we too afraid to offend them when we have the message that will save them from receiving the mark of the beast? And in many cases, they would do a more powerful work than we're doing. Listen, friends, the three angels' messages are for this time. We are God's chosen people with a chosen message, and Babylon really is fallen, and that is going to become very apparent the closer we get to the end of the world. So, I just want you to think about that. Let's not be ashamed of this message. Let's give it with a loud voice. Let's do it with the spirit of Christ, but let's make it clear that these messages are for this time. We are living in the hour of his judgment. We are are living in the most important period of earth's history. And when God has a people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to give that message for this time, then I think we're going to see some amazing things happen on this earth. And the fact that we're living in this pandemic right now gives me some hope that maybe, just maybe, God's people are about ready to receive the outpouring of the latter rain because we are being transformed by the power of the everlasting gospel. So that's my study for the evening. Thank you, everyone, for hanging around till the end and, and listening. I pray that it won't just be another nice little intellectual exercise for you where you have a better theological understanding of what the three angels' messages are. I hope it touches your heart and you spend some time with the Lord this evening saying, Lord, help me to be part of the remnant, not part of Babylon. Help me to experience the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, not the false gospel of Babylon. Help me to fear God and give glory to him and to worship him, realizing that I'm living in the hour of his judgment. And help me by the grace of God to warn my friends in Babylon in the right way and in the right time, but with a holy boldness so that we can have more faithful workers in God's cause before Jesus comes back. So Sarah Chang asks, is there a recording we can access later? So this has been recorded, so I'll defer to the organizers. But yeah, it has been recorded, so you should be able to get it later. Uh, I've got a question. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, going back to that point you said, um, like that hypothetical Sunday worshiper that's on fire for the Lord, but just we didn't get that message to him. Is he for sure lost? No. No, as someone who is living up to all the light that they have as a Sunday keeper, um, if they're living up to the light that they have, they're in a saved walk, saving walk with God. My point is, is that they may be in a saving walk with God, but just imagine what they could be with the knowledge of the three angels' messages. How much so, more so, they could do for God with that knowledge. So the follow-up then would be, we would then preach to them because we want their uh, preaching power on our side. 
but not because if we don't give it to them, they're not saved. Yes, correct. However, those who are in Babylon are in high danger of receiving the mark of the beast if the final crisis of Earth's history were to come sometime relatively soon. So if they were to come out now, it's so much easier to come out now than then. That's the last chance. That's like the last great escape, so to speak, where you get out by the skin of your teeth. You've been following the Lord and you're living up to all the light that you have. You're in a saving walk with him. And then the loud cry goes out that says, come out of here, my people. And then you see the full truth during the final crisis. And by God's grace, many will come out at that point. But it's probably fair to say that there may be some who will be lost who don't come out, that if we could have reached them ahead of time, maybe they would not have been lost. So, you know, someone who is a Sunday keeper today and they were to die tomorrow of unforeseen circumstances and they're living up to all the light that they have, they're in a saving walk with, with Christ. And, and scripture, God refers to them in scripture as my people. So it's not that they're not his people. They're just in a Babylonian system. And if we could get them out now, Imagine, you know, so point number one is they can do more for God if they join the three angels messages movement in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Secondly, they are at greater danger of receiving the mark of the beast if they stay in that system when the final crisis hits. If they're still in that system, they're in greater danger. So if we can reach them now, it's better. That's a great question. Now, Aaron asked a question, what is the best way to start sharing the three angels' messages with someone who doesn't have an, a Seventh-day Adventist background, assuming that you have a relationship with that person? So yes, first of all, developing a relationship with with the person is crucial. And, you know, Ellen White says Christ's method alone will, be, will bring true success. So first, you know, he um, gained their confidence and then he said, follow me. So, you know, the first thing, you, you, you're not going to talk to somebody who doesn't have an SDA background. Uh, the first thing that you talk to them about is not going to be the Sunday law or the mark of the beast. Um, but what I, I would say right now, especially during this pandemic, I would say, you know, the Bible has talked about what's happening right now is one of the signs of the coming of Christ. I mean, is that something you'd be interested in hearing more about? And then, you know, you could go through um, a variety of different Bible studies. Amazing Facts has a good Bible study. There's other things you could go through that, um, that go through the prophecies that lay a foundation. I would start by laying a foundation in Daniel 2. It's the best place to start, which lays a foundation that there's going to be a second coming and explain what the Bible says about the second coming. And then you can build on that as you go to other chapters. And then, you know, hopefully it, it will come, come along um, step by step. But, you know, I have someone that I work with who is a faithful Sunday church going Baptist. And, um, and I, and I've, I've talked to her about things through the years and, and I, I, I was very frank with her recently. I'm like, you know, um, I just, I need to tell you some things about prophecy. And, and I told her some things and, you know, I think most of you know, I've recently written a book on Daniel. So I gave her a copy of my book on Daniel, you know, great controversy is also a good book to share with people. That's a lot, a lot of people into the church. People have read their way into the church who've never even met Adamus by reading the book, great controversy. So those are different things that you can do, but yeah, developing a relationship with a person 
um, is, is very important. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, Amazing Facts, it is written, have, both have really good studies. I'm not um, preferential to one over the other. I think either one would be excellent. So, um, and there's probably other options out there as well. Um, let's see. So this is from Cliff. You said something interesting, which is if the three angels' messages have been preached to faithful Christians who were outside of the Adventist church, but in a Protestant church, but are now in the grave, then those faithful would have been powerful workers in proclaiming the three angels' messages. What's the relationship, if any, between what you said and what Ellen White said in this quote? So this quote is apparently from Great or General Conference Bulletin, May 24, 1909 about the light has been given that the truth should go again to the eastern states where we first begin our work and where we had our first experiences. We must make every effort to spread our knowledge. Oh, yeah. So, and she says, repeat those messages again. So, yeah, you know, if you understand the Northeast, the Northeast, New England, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, Connecticut, Rhode Island, all of that, man, that's one of the most secular parts of the United States. And yeah, Ellen White's saying, go back to that territory and preach the message that was first preached there in the 1840s, and, and it will bear fruit. And that would be true of any secular place. I mean, Southern California has plenty of secularism to it. And so, you know, you're not going to finish the work with a half-baked approach, which is what Adventism has been doing for the last hundred years. We think that we need to be the relevant church, which we need to be, sure, but we try to be the relevant church by being, you know, basically um, Sunday Christian church light with a bit of a Sabbath flavor to it, and it doesn't work, and that's why we're still here. And um, We need people with holy boldness who will share the three angels' messages Okay, someone asks, how would you approach a Jehovah's Witness with a three angels' messages? They are very good with their Bible. You know, um, <laughs> that can be a challenge because Jehovah's Witnesses are as convinced that they have the truth as Seventh-day Adventists are that we have the truth now. Whereas, like, you know, some of where I'm at here in, in the South, a lot of um, the Sunday-going Christians just figure as long as I love Jesus and go to church, that's good. And so some of them might be a bit more open. Jehovah's Witnesses, they can be reached. I mean, the message is to be given to everyone. But, I mean, basically it would come down to, um, if you're approaching a Jehovah's Witness, first of all, they'd have to be open. If you're trying to get into an argument at a fight with them it's not going to go anywhere you're just going to argue with each other and you'll both go back home um, stewing over what you could have said better to to win the argument better and it won't really accomplish anything so you know I wouldn't approach them from the standpoint of trying to win an argument um, you would hopefully try to actually gain their confidence as someone who cares about them um, so, so that they would be open to hearing from you but if you just try to sit them down and prove them wrong Mm, that may not be so effective. You know, the old saying goes, a man con convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So, you know, that's what I would say about that. But, you know, try to develop a relationship with them and then maybe they'd be more open to what you have to say about the Bible. And then at that point, it's going to be important to how you define interpreting scripture and how you, you know, what the authority scripture has. So... Well, and someone did ask me, how do you reach an argumentative person who thinks they know the truth? Well, I mean, I would start by praying for them um, and showing that you care about them, that you have Christian love for them. Um, 
but you know, it's very easy to get into an argument and, um, if they're argumentative, I mean, you might even say something of like, you know, why don't we just um, take an approach where we're, we're learning together, where we're studying together, but let's not try to argument or let's not try to argue, excuse me. Let's not try to argue. Um, and, you know, just let the Bible speak for itself. But I mean, if you're argumentative as well, it doesn't help. Like if you're like, well, see, that shows that what you believe is wrong. Um, just let the Bible speak, um, and, and that can be helpful also. Okay, there's a couple of other. Um, you had mentioned that giving glory to God is to hate evil. That's actually to fear God, not that it matters, because, I mean, it's all connected. But, um, so to fear God is to hate evil, but what would you tell someone who is misled on what evil is, like supporting abortion, even in the Adventist church? Well, I mean... <laughs> You know, the the Seventh Adventist Church, the Biblical Research Institute, just came out with a really good biblical document on abortion, and it shows that the unborn life in Scripture is considered in the same manner as as life outside of the womb. You know, again, you have to be careful about being argumentative, but I mean, um, if you can give them a clear Bible study on on life, that that, that could be helpful. Um, and then um, so, someone's like, this. so going back to the argument of the person, just showing them from scripture even make a difference. They have shared their view of the mark of the beast, and I want to share what you preach, but I'm hesitant. Well, again, I mean, I think you could approach them if you have a relationship with a person. They've shared their view on the mark of the beast. You could come back and say, you know, um, I appreciated you sharing your view on what the mark of the beast is. Um, would you allow me to share my viewpoint? Now, again, it depends on where they are. I mean, if you're just going to go straight into, you know, condemning someone to eternal hellfire, so to speak, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know, the, then it could become uh, just uh, an argument, but um, I'm not even sure I would start with the mark of the beast with them. If you could show them the rest of prophecy first. Um, then someone said, are there any three angels message studies for middle school aged children? Um, I don't know. Maybe someone else on this group does know. But what I would say is that, you know, I can make the three angels messages understandable for my nine-year-old and six-year-old daughters. Now, of course, my two-year-old, maybe not yet. But but the older two, I mean, I can break down the, the gospel and fearing God and giving glory to him at a level where a child can understand and I'm not going to get into the theological depth perhaps that we did here tonight, but I can make it understandable for them. So, you know, I don't know specifically, again, I know Doug Batchelor has some series out there that might be helpful. He does some kids programs. So you might look into that. Um, but I think you can tailor um, the three angels messages to every people group of whatever age group, including children. Um, and it does look like um, someone shared the link to the updated statement on abortion from the church. Um, and then um, someone says, I appreciate the point that you made regarding keeping the Sunday law by force versus God's law through free will. It clearly shows the contrast between Satan's character and God's character. That's a great point. So I'm glad you brought that out, that the mark of the beast versus um, the seal of God shows Satan's character of enforcement versus God's character of free will. All those who receive the seal of God, it will be through our 
free will through our choice to allow God to change us. Um, so someone asked, will the three angels' messages and all that it implies be revealed by the latter rain? Absolutely. When the latter rain is poured out, the loud cry is given, and all three messages will be given with great power to the entire earth, and it will be um, proclaimed and demonstrated. Um, and then... Um, Next question, what is the best way to approach Seventh-day Adventists who have moved on in their thinking? You know, there's a lot of times Adventists who have moved on, so to speak, they've been hurt. Um, you know, there's the wheat and the tares in the church. There's the wise and the foolish virgins. And sometimes the foolish virgins beat people over the head with the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. They they have truth, but they don't have the oil of the Holy Spirit. Um, if you could have the oil of the Spirit, if you could have the fruits of the Spirit of gentleness, I'm not being a bull in the china shop, so to speak, but having that gentleness, but still living by firm conviction, that's what makes all the difference. So yeah, unfortunately, there are Adventists who have turned people off because we have the truth of the three angels' messages. We can give a clear Bible study on it, but we're really jerks to be around otherwise, and that's not going to win people. Um, so there has to be the, the fruits revealed and seen, and that's that's how you can reach people who have moved on. All right. Well, I mean, we're 20 minutes after. I mean, that's a lot of good questions, but I mean, if people are good, that's good with me. So thank you, everyone. So I'm looking forward to next week. You're not going to you're not going to want to miss next week because next week is the third angel's message. And I'm going to show you some things about the third angel's message that I'm pretty sure you've probably never seen before. And it's going to blow your mind and it's going to put Christ at the very heart of the third angel's message. And so you don't want to miss next week. And if you can't attend, get the recording, whatever it may be. But I'm excited about next Tuesday's study on the third angel's message. It's going to be, um, for me, the most exciting study yet. So I'm so thankful to see so many people who are joining this study and who are interested in understanding the three angels' messages. And um, God is raising up people who are going to not only understand these messages, but live by the power of these messages as well. So why don't we go have, uh, I'll go ahead and have a, a closing prayer and we can bring this, this study to a close. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us this evening. We thank you for each person that was on this call, on this study. And we thank you for the three angels' messages that you've given to us for this time. Lord, may we give these messages with a loud voice. May we give them unashamedly. May we give them in the spirit and in the character of Christ. May we reach a lost and dying world with these messages. And may we allow nothing else to absorb our attention. Thank you for calling us to be who we are. May we, by your grace, surrender to you and be used by you to be your representatives to this world. So I pray that you will be with us the rest of this evening, the rest of this week. May we be faithful and found ready when you come and bring us back again next week for next week's study. We just thank you and we praise you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.